What's up, Live Life Aggressively Podcast Nation? This is Sincere here, and it's hard to believe that it's been one year since Mike and I started this podcast, and we've had a lot of great guests. But I must say, today's guest has been one of the most requested guests that we've had in the last 12 months. And finally, he's finally taken some time out of his busy schedule. We found him, and he travels all the time, but he took some time out to spend some time and talk to Mike and myself and address a lot of the questions that you guys have had. One thing about it, what we're doing here with this episode is actually we're going to do something a little different. Instead of just one episode, we got into such a great conversation with our guest today that we broke this down into a two-part show. So today's show is going to be part one of this interview with the legendary Steve Maxwell. And we cover everything from nutrition to training to the early days of the RKC, even when they were sitting down and putting things together to even come up with the RKC. Now, there's a story right there I think few have ever been privy to. And these are the type of things that we're going to be talking about. We're also going to talk about how Steve feels about the current state of fitness today. Also, other trends such as CrossFit and how they fit into the fitness realm as it is today. And this will be covered in part two. So without further ado, we're going to get into part one of our interview with the man himself, Steve Maxwell, and stay tuned. Come right back here as we come with part two next week. So go ahead right now, subscribe to the show so you don't miss out. Once again, thanks, everybody, for giving us a great year. And hopefully we got many more years to come and many great guests to come. I'm telling you right now, as far as May and June is concerned, it's already going to be a hell of a lineup, man. We got some great guests coming. We're not done yet, people. We're just getting started. So without further ado, here's part one of our interview with the man himself, Steve Maxwell, right here on the Live Life Aggressively podcast with Mike Mahler and yours truly, Sincere Hogan. What's up, people? Another week. This is the Live Life Aggressive Podcast. Strong. Coming back from a strong month. But I got to say this, Mike, before we get started, man. First of all, and this is just straight up brother to brother here and nothing else beyond that. Happy anniversary, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you get me a ring, buddy? Yours is in the mail. Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we've been, doing, we've been doing the show for a year now. We actually started last May. So it's time flies, man. Time really flies. And What's funny is we've had quite a few people go, when are you going to get the guy that we have on today on the show? And uh-huh. I go, we're going to, I go, we're going to get him on the show when we've we're built ready. a real audience because <laughs> exactly. I don't want to get him on the show when we have 30 people listening. You know, I don't <laughs> want to waste his time. I've known the guy for a long time. Right. And I, I've known our guest today, Steve Maxwell, for many years. I met him in 2002. He was actually one of the first guys I interviewed when I first got into business. And he was always really gracious with giving me his time. He helped me with some contacts in Los Angeles when I first moved out there. He's always been one of those guys that whenever you have a question about training that you're wondering about, you just get on the phone and call him up because he always has an answer or he always has some input to to give on the whole topic. He's forgotten more than most people will ever know. He's been in this industry for a long time. He's very skilled in body weight training, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, training for jiu-jitsu, kettlebell training, staying in shape on the road, nutrition, you name it, just a total wealth of information. 
And Steve, welcome aboard, man. Hey, welcome. It's hey, thanks, Mike, and sincere. Uh, great to meet your acquaintance. Uh, and hey, my uh, happy anniversary to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> did oh, you man. Uh, did you go did you go to Jared's sincere? Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <with the> Jared. <laughs> <laughs> get a commercial together for them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man, I see you have that commercial out there in Cali too, huh? <laughs> oh man. So cool, yeah, every kiss may begin with K, but that's not how we celebrated. Yeah, <laughs> come on, come on. it may start off with K, but it might end up with a fist. OK, <laughs> oh, man. so Steve, man, first of all, I know you're where, where are you in the world right now? Because pretty much to keep up with you, you have to go to your website and see where Steve now. So where, where are you right now, man? I'm actually in New York City, the Big Apple. Okay. Uh, I've been here for almost 10 days, but I took a side trip to uh, Buffalo, New York also. So I, I do bounce around. I yeah. half the time I get off the plane and uh, I don't even know where I am. Wow. Thank God <laughs> I have I have an assistant who travels with me, my girlfriend, my companion, uh, Teresa, Teresa Blazy. And mm-hmm. if it wasn't for her, I, I wouldn't even know where I'm going <laughs> half the time. She is amazing with uh, making plane reservations, hotel. Uh, you know, we go to Airbnb a lot to uh, rent little little places. So you can, can save a lot of money like that over hotels. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I'll get off the plane. Uh, what am I? What am I teaching? Where am I? <laughs> I wake like, up in like the a, morning. And, you sound like a famous rock star. You get on stage and someone has to tell you <laughs> what city you're performing in front exactly. of. Exactly. But you know, Steve, you used to. I think it's really interesting because your lifestyle, this nomadic lifestyle you've had for about six years now, and you're loving it, but it wasn't always that way. You used to run a gym in Philadelphia, max exercise for many years. You owned a home. You had what many consider a traditional American lifestyle. And I remember years ago when you and I were teaching in Marina Del Rey, you were telling me how your dream was always to just give all that up and just get in a van and go. (laughs) And uh, I hear that kind of stuff all the time. And I was like, yeah, I doubt that's ever going to happen. But then you did make it happen several years later. So what what started this whole process? What made you want to give up that traditional lifestyle, sell your gym and just hit the road, never look back? Well, divorce always has a big thing to do with those things. <laughs> <laughs> That'll help. Yeah. There's some motivation that, That's for always you. the little goose. But, uh, you know, it's, it was funny. This is like the second time that I actually went through this little process. Back in mm-hmm. the 70s, after I graduated from college um, with a degree in health and physical education, I was teaching in the public school system. But I went through uh, a breakup with my then wife, and I moved in a teepee. <laughs> Seriously, I, I got rid of everything I owned, including my car, and moved in an Indian teepee. And to show you how f- far out I was living in the country, the name of the road I was on was called Groundhog College Road. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I just worked at a local health food store and did landscaping. And I really loved that minimal lifestyle, uh, rode a bike for transportation, and everything I owned was in one big old duffel bag. Hmm. And then, uh, you know, in Philly, uh, Maxercise was like my dream gym. I had worked in many, many fitness centers for many years and always wanted my own gym. And in 1990, my ex-wife, D.C. Maxwell, and myself opened up Maxercise Sports Fitness. And it uh, was the first Brazilian jiu-jitsu academy in the eastern seaboard, the first uh, gym to actually do group kettlebell classes. Uh, Before that, we had uh, done a lot with high-intensity training, uh, super slow, uh, a lot of hammer strength stuff. So uh, I was pretty versatile, Jim. And uh, 
you know, we lived in the four-story brownstone house, the two cars, the TV in every room, the two kids, you know, the, <laughs> the so-called perfect lifestyle. Oh. But, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, neither uh, my ex or myself were really all that happy. Here we had worked hard, opened up our gym, had our own business. Everything should have been perfect, but it wasn't. I found myself going home in the middle of the afternoon and wanting to go back to work. And I'd be at work and I'd find myself wanting to be at home. It, it was just very interesting. Uh, it, it wasn't all what it was cracked up to be, owning your own business. A lot of pressures, uh, working with your significant other can be a lot of pressure in itself. Uh, really tough working and living together. You know, of course, kids are always uh, a, a tough thing. I'm not so sure I was ever really that kind of guy that was cut out to have kids. I tell people all the time, young men in particular, hey, really think twice about that because it's it's a big responsibility. Not everyone's really cut out to be a parent. Right. And if you had uh, poor role models as parents, um, you know, what makes you think that you're going to be <laughs> right. any, any good at this, you know? So, I mean, it's some, you know, people kind of have kids like accessories these days. Yeah. And uh, wow, what a stress. And no wonder marriages are breaking up and, and so forth. But yeah, uh, my wife and I called it quits. And um, I moved into a camper van, the one that you saw when I met you in Las Vegas that time. Yeah. L- lived in there for three years. And I really liked uh, just being mobile. I always had this little dream about like leading this nomadic uh, existence and living in some type of RV. That was a cool one because it was small and didn't take up a lot of space. And uh, I started, once I went on the road with the seminars, uh, just one led to the next, which led to the next. What do you do with a $80,000 motorhome, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I figured, you know what, this is just one more thing in my life I don't need. So I got rid of it and... Now, everything I own, gentlemen, is in one 65-liter bag. That's like, uh, you know, about 24 inches by 48 and about 16 inches deep. So all my worldly possessions I now carry in one bag. And I refuse to have one of those uh, roller bags because I want to feel the weight of my possessions on my body when Mm. I move around. And if it's getting too heavy i know for a fact i'm just lugging around too much crap so mm-hmm. i i want to i want to feel that way I, I won't i won't use a roller bag i physically carry it and if it's too heavy to carry it then i have too much stuff and i'm constant well mike you know me i like to shop and buy stuff right so i'm constantly uh buying new stuff but the old stuff goes out so right anything i buy that is going into the bag something got to get jettisoned out so that's a, that's a good philosophy yeah, to have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 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 Whenever you buy stuff for your home, you buy a new couch, get rid of an old one. You buy new clothes, get rid of something in your closet. And yeah, let me tell you, that works very well in this household. And my wife and I talk about it all the time. It's like, well, something's coming in, something's got to go out immediately, even in our closet, man. We're just constantly, every few months, purging, just going through the closet. Like, look, I haven't worn this in six months. It's time for it to go. And then we go donate it. We give it to the Star Hope Mission and give it to somebody that's actually going to put some use to it instead of just keeping it in your closet and looking back and remembering, like, yeah, I remember I bought this one in Vegas that time about 10 years ago and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just that's what ends up having a lot of people going toward this whole hoarder lifestyle. They start attaching all these memories to these things. And so they can just go back and reminisce when they look at it. But dude, other, it's just taking up space. It's taking up space. It's like it, it's taking, that memory it is. is taking up space in your mind because you can't move forward because you're still reminiscing over that one time in Vegas when you bought those boots and the other story that went along with it that you probably don't want to talk about. 
<laughs> <You know? laughs> Watch in Vegas stays. But, you know, it's also interesting. I have another theory on this, too. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just kind of expanding. You mentioned accumulation. Mm-hmm. The American people, uh, also in Europe to an extent, but there's a real accumulation mindset. And this is one of the reasons why people are accumulating so much body fat around their waist. Mm-hmm. Right. It's this idea that they must get more and more and more and more is better. Bigger is better. Right. And, you know, and their, their, their attic is full of stuff and their garage is full of stuff that they, they don't use. They don't need, you know, they, their closets are just jammed with clothes they haven't worn in three years. And, you know, you go to the cupboards and it's jammed with food. Some of it isn't even good anymore. It's stale. And they, but they just keep accumulating. And then they wonder why they're getting fat. But it's the mindset of accumulation that creates that type of subconscious behavior that makes them do a lot of things that would, you know, like overeating and, and overnourishing themselves and so forth. And I noticed that when people really do purge and, and clean up, uh, it makes it a lot easier to lose weight. It's just interesting how those behaviors go hand in hand. Exactly. Just letting go, man. Letting go. I think that's a good point, even in business, right? If you have so much clutter, if I have a lot of clutter around where I'm trying to work, it's very difficult to think straight because right. you're just constantly <laughs> distracted. I'm like, just like meditation is the advice is always find a really quiet room, mm-hmm. lights off, so you don't have a lot of distractions. And I think we're constantly distracted. I think a lot of that's on purpose, too. I feel that we're inundated with distractions to make society dumb so that you don't focus on anything important. Two people are too busy focusing on what the Kardashians are doing, or, or you know, who, what's up with the racist, who, you know, basketball coach. When I'm like, right. no, well, here, just with that story, it's like, you know, why everybody was focused on that. You had 200 and what, 234 girls that were kidnapped from a Nigerian boarding school going on at the same time, but nobody was outraged about that because they didn't hear about right. it. They were focused on the basketball coach saying racist remarks. Like, who cares? <laughs> who cares about that? <laughs> How important is that? What he's saying? It's a dude with his opinion. Who gives a damn? What about these girls? So it's all these right. distractions, right? There and all this other stuff overbearing like social media. And even when you talk about the workspace, Mike, it, it even goes beyond just being around your around your workspace, even on your workspace. So if you're on your computer and you have like 15,000 tabs open, it's hard to get any work, <laughs> any work done. Right. So that's why Firefox is probably the worst browser ever. It is like the browser for distractions, man. So I, yeah. Well, I would say Facebook is one of the worst things ever <laughs> for any serious entrepreneur that wants to get work done because most people, 90% of people who, you can use Facebook very well for business and I, and I feel like I do and you do and Steve does. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people, more majority of people I see that are entrepreneurs that have a Facebook page are wasting their time. They're not doing anything useful whatsoever. They're on there with their stupid little comments, and then they're they're posting their opinion on other people's pages where it has nothing. Nothing useful is going to come out of that, you know, for anything you're trying to do. It's it's a it can be a total black hole where you just live this virtual existence and you're not even out in the real world anymore. Right. And I, I get that too. It see. definitely is time consuming. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, policing a page like that is 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 uh, <laughs> brutal on one's free time. And <laughs> yeah, you, I, was about I to mean, say it that. becomes a it becomes like a full time job. Truly, yeah, it does. It does. And I was just about to ask you about that, Steve, because I know you're pretty you're pretty much everywhere on social media, but it's very effective. So it's not a bunch of just time wasting going on. It's very effective, but it's not also a bunch of overselling, which is the which is the opposite of what usually happens with a lot of entrepreneurs on Facebook and, sh- and sites like that. If they're not wasting their time, they're trying to waste our time with all their spam about, I'm doing this, I got this, I got this, I got this, and they never really give any content out there. And I must say that you provide a lot of great content. In fact, probably 
when I first came across you was actually just on YouTube. And a lot of quick, right to the point clips, not just a bunch of just yip yap going on or whatever. It's just right to the point. And it's like, okay, boom. And it's really establishing yourself as an expert in the things that you do. So my thing is, man, how do you, how do you effectively utilize social media without it sucking all your time up, man? But at the same time, not just overbearing the end user with just a bunch of just sell, 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 go get this, sign up for this, sign up for this type stuff, man. One of the things I made up my mind was I didn't want to sell out and just mm-hmm. start allowing uh, people to attach themselves to my 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 page. Mm-hmm. I've had you know so many offers, but stuff I don't use or necessarily believe in, or you know maybe just don't know anything about. And I'm loath to just sell out, and, and, and I, I just believe it's dishonorable. And and I uh, Teresa helps me out quite a bit. You know mm-hmm. she alerts me to like what's going on and so forth. I'm not real tech savvy, so she definitely helps me with uh, posting YouTube videos and so forth. I always wanted to uh, uh, keep everything clean and just, like you said, get to the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't have long attention spans. They're not going sit, to sit through a 15-minute tutorial on the <laughs> kettlebell swing or something. I mean, you know, you, you just get there, demonstrate the technique, maybe talk a few seconds about this or that and the other thing. That's it. Boom. And uh, people have a real keen interest in, in short to the brief to the point things that are, are are clear and clean without a lot of other things attached so there's on my on my particular social media there's no hidden agendas uh, no attempt at the sales i mean I'm, i mentioned i have you know videotapes and things for sale but other than that that's it man so it's but it, it is a two-person operation and we do have to you know uh spend time every day looking at it but that's how i make my living now I developed a online and uh, profile and online personal training. I call it a freedom business. That's one reason right. I was able to uh, just give up a permanent address and go traveling such as I do. I can do my business anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter. As long as I have good internet service, I can be in Australia. I could be in Tahiti. I could be in Norway. It doesn't matter. Um, so it gives you complete autonomy and, and complete freedom. And now, you know, now with the PayPal and, you know, one shopping cart and this and that and the other thing, you can um, com- be completely free of the man, so to speak. Right. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. I remember hearing about the freedom business you know, lifestyle, mainly from um, Natalie Sisson. She has a podcast where she speaks specifically about that. Um, she wrote this book. Sincere. Oh, there we go. There oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah, We're she... back. Okay, go ahead. Oh, okay. You started talking. <laughs> oh. You tell us about you. You heard about the freedom business? Yeah, I first heard about it through um, Natalie Sisson. Um, she wrote the book, Suitcase, The Suitcase Entrepreneur. And she pretty much is living her lifestyle the exact same way that you are. And she's doing very well as far as um, the internet marketing space um, with this lifestyle. No permanent address whatsoever. She's originally, I believe, from um, Australia. And um, she does the exact same thing, man. And she just pretty much, she started off, had a, you know, a little business, I think, in Canada for a little while. They did a startup. I think it was, I don't know if it was Kickstarter or if it was something just like that. And they got it going. And then they sold it. And then after that, she was tired of it. She was tired of just having that regular nine to five. Even if she was the entrepreneur that helped start it, it still felt like a job to her. And she just started doing this freedom lifestyle business, man, where she's just all over the place. You never know exactly where she's going to record that podcast each week. But, you know, she's happy like that, man, living that same nomadic lifestyle. And there are people that look at that lifestyle and think, like, how can you guys do that? You know, how can you just give up everything and move everything? I'm like, I don't think you're giving up anything. Actually, I think you're gaining a lot more by letting all that stuff go, man. So it's definitely. Well, releases a lot of pressure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's really funny because I can remember years ago, uh, 
taking a couple trips to jiu-jitsu tournaments and such with my ex-wife mm-hmm. i remember her saying wow i could really get used to this like living in hotels and <laughs> but you know at the time i don't know for some reason it just seemed so unrealistic or just too far out there for us but uh later it was like wow this really is this can easily be a reality mm-hmm. it, it and, and and it is it's quite interesting how it all all came to uh, into place. I used to be a real fan of this uh, uh, guy, uh, this uh, one writer that used to do a lot of esoteric writings and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, he used to talk about sitting and meditating and just would sit there and wait till he got a hit on where he should go next. And mm-hmm. he just traveled with one bag and his laptop. And where during his meditation, when he get that hit, he'd say, oh, I'm going to go there. <laughs> he would go there. Next thing you know, Boom, this guy would make an offer for a workshop. Some other guy would, um, you know, contact him online. Before you know it, he'd have a workshop, and that's how this guy lived. Very, very interesting uh, guy. Steve, what do you, what do you, how do you stay in shape on the, actually, let's get into what your workouts are right now. What are your training goals? How you stay in shape on the road, and including nutrition, because a lot of guys travel, a lot of men and women, women travel quite a bit, and they're always wondering, how do they stay fit on the road? What should they what should they do diet wise? Well, one one of the things that um, one of the, I, I read this gentleman by the name of Dr. John Tilden, very fascinating turn of the century physician who cured so called incurable diseases through through diet. He was very very big on fasting and uh, light eating and combining the foods. His idea was wasn't so much uh, nutrition as what what can you digest. It's not so much what you eat, what can you digest, and what can you assimilate. Mm -hmm. You could have the best, highest quality foods in the world and still be overweight and and full of toxins and and, and feel miserable, sickly. So it's not always just about quality of food, but it's the digestive process. Most people in the United States and Europe, they they have what I call overcrowded nutrition. Mm -hmm. They just try to eat too many things in one meal. Right. And then they'll yeah. have a dessert on top of that. <laughs> and, you know, that causes all sorts of fermentation and, yeah. and, and all sorts of digestive disturbances. And they end up not uh, digesting the food well at all. This co- creates a lot of toxicity in the body, and it ends up with all sorts of inflammation and, and, and sickness and just all sorts of crazy stuff. So I'm very, very careful the way I combine my foods. I'll have a fruit-based meal. I'll have a starch-based meal. And I'll have a protein-based meal. And I'll eat protein with salads or cooked vegetables, uh, sometimes a soup. With my starch, sometimes I'll have vegetables, sometimes the starch by itself. With the fruit, it's usually by itself. Occasionally, I'll have some light dairy. When I say light, uh, uh, medium-fat yogurts or kefir or something like that. Mm -hmm. If I start to put on a little weight, which you can do occasionally, uh, I'll cut the starches. And I'll go to two fruit-based meals. And I try to fast at least once a week, and um, at least once a year I'll fast up to uh, seven days. How did you get on this whole diet take? Because I know you you trained with the Gracies. I think you were the first black American black belt under the Gracie family. Is that correct? Uh, it is not. I, I okay. was definitely one of the first American black belts, but what order or what hierarchy, I do not know. Okay. Um, there have been some guys that had been awarded the black belt, but I know I was one of the first uh, from directly from the Gracie family. I was Helson Gracie's first American black belt, 
He was the second oldest son of Elliot Gracie. Right. But they had a very interesting mm-hmm. diet. It was uh, ba- based also on food combining, very similar to yeah. what I do now. <laughs> and uh, the idea was back in the day, the Gracies had a challenge where they were willing to, you know, uh, fight anybody from any style, any time. And it wasn't uncommon for people just to show up at their academy and want to get it on. Well, you know, you, you can't afford to have a big belly full of food and, you know, have to say, well, I, I can't fight right <laughs> now because, you know, I, I'm, I'm digesting my food and I'm kind of full. Yeah. So they had this very light diet, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, smoothies, a lot of um, fresh raw juices that they would make with their raw juicer. They kept them light. And it's real interesting because they were very uh, aggressive, uh, uh, warrior-like people, but yet they were damn close to being pure vegetarians. Horian was definitely a vegetarian, uh, virtually vegan, although he had some some uh, small amount of dairy. Mm-hmm. And um, wow, they were fierce, and they could fight any time, day or night. You know. What, what about Hickson? Was he more of a meat eater? Because he's a bigger guy than yes, quite a few yes, others. he was. Yeah, he he uh, he he definitely liked to uh, eat the meat. He felt it uh, increased his aggressiveness. Ah, uh. and uh, he liked a little fried food now and again. That also increases aggression. He mm. felt he needed that aggressive edge to do what he had to do, and you know he makes a point. But uh, it, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I I. Uh, actually stayed with Master Elio Gracie at his farm in Terrazopolis, Brazil, for mm. a month one time. And uh, I, I saw the way the old man ate. And uh, he would eat fish occasionally and uh, some small amount of eggs. But he was pretty much a vegetarian, uh, over-lacto-vegetarian. And uh, he he made all his own food right there. You know, uh, SIE is very popular, but it's right. pretty mm-hmm. much like frozen sugar water, what you buy in the mm-hmm. local yeah. market. yeah. Elliot would go outside in the backyard and pick acai off the trees. It was amazing. And the stuff, uh, it does, I mean, I, I was really shocked when I first saw it, you know, what it actually looks like, uh, raw. And it has a very bitter taste. It's not, sweet oh, yeah. or ta- it's not tasty at all. But he would juice this stuff and make a very tasty beverage. And, wow, it was like an elixir. I mean, imagine getting pure raw acai off the tree. Uh, it's way different than the frozen stuff we buy at Whole Foods, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I can, right. I can imagine. <laughs> and oh, yeah, I learned I learned a lot from those guys about oh, light eating. So I basically adapted the same light eating. So it's not that hard to just you know find fruit at any airport. Steve, when, when did when did this whole transition happen? Because when I when I first met you, you had a much different diet. You were eating yeah. a lot of red meats, very low carbohydrate diet, or basically almost no carbohydrates. Yeah. When I came very across animal you, protein based. Yeah, when I came across you, you were more into the warrior diet at that time. You're a big proponent of that. Well, I've always experimented. You know, I, I've gone back and forth with different regimens and so forth, and I was I strongly uh, in, uh, under. Uh, the influence of uh, Dr. Gregory Ellis. We've talked about him before. Sure. And he he was a real hardcore, low-carb guy, meat guy. And um, I tried it, you know, and uh, I, I did okay. Um, I mean, you've heard of Weston Price and the work he did. Sure. You know, he yes. was a dentist that traveled the world and studied indigenous populations. And he looked at, you know, the healthiest indigenous populations across the board. And these were people living, you know, uh, in, uh, with nature, not civilized people. And he found that there's a huge variety of foods and diets that people adapt well to and that you can be healthy on any number of diets. But it seemed like the most magnificent 
of all the peoples he studied were the Polynesians who ate pretty much um, starchy taro and seafood mm-hmm. and, and coconuts and fresh fruits. Mm-hmm. And um, I did the meat diet for a while. I, I got fairly decent results. I certainly gained a lot of muscular body weight at the time. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I found that uh, I was still having a lot of inflammatory stuff going on. Yeah. And uh, it, it's just not the kind of diet that you can just maintain. It's a rather expensive diet. And finding, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> finding <laughs> Tell good, me about it. <laughs> finding, finding, finding good meat also is more and more difficult. Right. So yeah. I got more and more away from the, the whole meat idea. And I found that, you know, carbohydrates really aren't the bad boys that people make them out. It's right. overeating it. Yeah. And, you know, certainly starches are not the bad boys in nutrition. Gluten isn't the bad boy. It's when people overeat this stuff, they create these intolerances in their own body. Right. You know, I mean, think about the average American with this gluten thing. You know, they have toast at breakfast along with some type of cereal. Then they'll have a sandwich for lunch. That's that's like meat combined with starch, which is never a good combination. Yeah, then at night they'll have dinner dinner rolls or or, or bread <laughs> along, yeah. along with you know more meat. Well, no wonder they have a gluten intolerance. They're eating it. <laughs> You know, three meals a day, you know, 24-7. It's like, you know, it. you could develop an intolerance for almost anything if you overeat it. Right, but right, right. It's a, it's a very easy thing to maintain this little food combining thing. And the first thing to go, of course, if you start to put on accumulated body fat is the starch. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I find, you know, if I just cut down my starches and just stick with the kind of carbohydrates I would get in raw and cooked vegetables and raw uh, fruits – Right. I'm fine, and you'll drop weight pretty quick. But you know, with the fiber and and all the cell salts that you get with whole foods, like especially raw fruits and vegetables, it's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. And you have a uh, a tendency not to overeat so much. But you know, I read about these kids, and I get people online wanting uh, weight loss programs, and you know, you read their diets, and you know, my God, they're they're you know they're e- eating pizza and 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 uh, all, all this fast food and uh, pre-made food and TV dinners, those those meals are designed to overeat. The manufacturers, the food manufacturers, literally make the food so delicious and so so overstimulating to the taste buds that it's like you can't help yourself. Right. You can't help but overeat that stuff. Right. It's like Lay said it. You can't eat just one. It's like they. It's like they told you. They put it right there in your face. You can't just eat one. So. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's manufactured. Yeah, it's manufactured to have a certain ratio of sugar, salt, chemical additives, right. and creamy texture, where it's highly addictive. It just fires off the dopamine receptors in your brain, where yeah. you want that reward pathway satisfied often. Yeah. yeah. It's so stimulating. It's like having sex in your mouth. Don't you can take that any way you want. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty much. Yeah, we, <laughs> I, I've, I've heard. I've heard it referred to as a mouth orgasm. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a better way to say. It. Yeah, well, exactly. I, that, I don't know. That, that's open. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's open to some discussion as well, for sure. Some interpretation. <laughs> what What about training wise, Steve? What are your What are your workout goals like now, as opposed to let's say when? Because a lot, a lot of people know you and I were the original senior part of the original senior RKC team in back in 2002 to 2006. I think I left a few months before you did. But your, what were your training goals like then, and then how have they evolved over time, and what are you working on now? Well, my, my training was always geared toward making me a better athlete. Right. I had uh, started wrestling really young. Um, I pretty much sucked in most <laughs> – you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a lot of talent and skills uh, to play baseball or basketball, right. and uh, I was a little bit too small for football. 
And we didn't have gymnastics in our school when I was a kid. This was back in the 1960s. But I did find I really excelled in wrestling. It was like, wow, this is really something I can do, and I really like it. And, um, you know, I grew up with a brother, and we were always fighting and wrestling and this and that and the other thing. So um, everything was geared towards making me a better athlete. I never got bit by the bodybuilding bug. Uh, well, that's not exactly true. There was a, a short time, like a year. Uh, in my senior year in high school, I got bit by the bodybuilding bug. But for the most part, it was all about becoming a better wrestler, following every type of modality you could all throughout my entire life. And I first read about the kettlebell in an article in Milo magazine. It's a strength journal, pretty good magazine. Yep. It comes out four times a year. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, it was written by Pavel. It was a very humorous article on uh, kettlebell. Uh, it was vodka, pickle juice, and kettlebells in the morning. It was like the uh, a Russian uh, hangover cure. <laughs> <laughs> and he talked about the, these kettlebells increasing strength endurance. And I thought, wow, this really, really sounds interesting. But, man, you couldn't find a kettlebell anywhere. And I had always seen pictures of old-time strongmen using ring weights and kettlebells. So I had one of my jiu-jitsu students at the time fashion me a pair out of stainless steel. He happened to work in a metal shop, um, Philadelphia Electric Metal Shop. And he got some scrap stainless steel and made me two very serviceable kettlebells that each weighed about 49 and a half pounds. And uh, I remember when he brought them in the truck outside in the parking lot, right outside my gym, I ran downstairs like a kid in Christmas morning and we flipped open the back of the truck and there they were all shiny and smooth. And um, I grabbed them and I, I did what I thought a, a snatch would look like. And, of course, not having any technique, the thing just banged on my forearm. <laughs> and I remember, and I, I remember saying, wow, man, those Russians are really tough, man. <laughs> 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 and then it was the short time thereafter that um, I met Pavel, and we sat down, uh, John Duquesne. And, and um, it was a guy from Athletic that was making their kettlebells at the time. And uh, actually, Orth Hoffmacher was at that dinner. And we actually came up with the plans for the original RKC. And a few weeks later, I went out to St. Paul, and I was a guest instructor. And we taught that first day RKC, pretty much flying by the seat of our pants. And you know, then Pavel and I, and then uh, other people came on board, like yourself and Rob Lawrence and some of the early guys. We started coming up with the curriculum. And we were the guys that pretty much determined the curriculum for those original RKC. So my, my workouts became more geared towards kettlebell training, but I noticed a big gap in kettlebells. That was vertical pulling, so for sure, you know, pull-ups were, had to be an integral part to keep the shoulder girdle healthy. So right. it was always bodyweight training in kettlebells. But, you know, jiu-jitsu is a very harsh mistress. She doesn't tolerate other, other forms of exercise very much. It's very <laughs> easy to get overtrained and burned out. So you got to be really careful how, how you add supplemental training in to any kind of combat sport. That could be wrestling or judo, uh, mixed martial arts, uh, you know, uh, Muay Thai. You can get burnt out really easily. So I found that real minimal workouts uh, done only twice a week seem to work out best for uh, increasing strength and fitness and endurance. Uh, Jiu-jitsu is certainly a great way to get your sports-specific um, fitness needs met. But the problem with, you know, that type of martial art, you're not working on strength. It's certainly nothing that you can can uh, load properly. You know, you 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 do, um, the the problem with all these type of combat arts. A lot of guys try to use it as a primary fitness 
uh, modality, mm -hmm. but there's no way to tell what you really did or how hard you right. worked. There's no way to record keep, you know? So with strength training, for sure, it's going to improve you across the board no matter what type of activity you do. But the problem is if you get too extensive with your strength training and you're pushing yourself too far too often, you're going to burn out. You're going to be too tired. So there's this, there's this like a high wire act where you're always balancing too much versus too little. And I found it's much better to err on the side of too little. Better to be a little undertrained than overtrained. Mm -hmm. And as I hit the road, even though I was doing kettlebell seminars, I found that, wow, you know, a kettlebell really is a hassle to. I, I actually did try to travel with one for a while, but it, is, uh, <laughs> it has, some, has some unique problems. So uh, I'm pretty much doing body weight exercise. And now that I'm in my 60s, you know, my, my days were making big gains are long gone. You know, the days for PRs are gone. At this stage of the game, you try to maintain the level that you had built up. So I tell these younger guys, you know, training is like putting money in the bank, you know. Mm -hmm. You try to build a surplus so that you have something to fall back on as you get older. Because for sure, you're going to lose size, you're going to lose strength, you're going to slowly get weaker and smaller. But if you already had a really high level in your younger days, you're still going to maintain really, really well, even in your 70s and your 80s. <laughs> and I, I, had, I had a friend that just saw Clarence Bass recently. Man, Clarence looks unbelievable. He's in yeah, his 70s yeah. now. Guy's incredible. And uh, the same guy, he's from Austria. He uh, went and saw Frank Zane at Zane, Zane Haven. Mm -hmm. Frank Zane's mm -hmm. looking good, man. Still maintaining a very good physique and you know, still very mobile, uh, you know, full of energy. So it is possible to maintain a very, very high level. Yeah. Well, one yeah. thing I have found, though, really emphasizing negative training seems to be more and more important as you get older for preserving oh. lean muscle mm. tissue. So I'm doing a lot of uh, uh, negative accentuated type training where I'm doing uh, really prolonged uh, negative reps. And it's interesting because uh, Ori Hoffmeckler wrote about this too as an anti-aging tool, really pushing the muscles quite hard. So workouts, very brief, very infrequent, uh, you know, no more than two workouts a week and really emphasizing negative training. And Ori adds in another stress. He likes to uh, train while fasting and then mm -hmm. immediately thereafter uh, have a meal. So there's two stresses. You're having the uh, the stress of, of being uh, fasted and then the stress of training at a very high intensity. And that's a really good way for older older men to maintain a, a fairly high level of strength and, and conditioning into advanced age. The, 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 but it's very important to go uh, infrequently. You cannot do this often or you will be a burnout man. Right. Now, Steve, what do you say to a lot of guys? You know, there's so many guys there saying that, okay, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in my forties, man, and I can't train like I used to, or, or, you know, I can't, you know, I can't get back in shape now, man. It's like I've gone too long. At what point is it this game of maintenance that you're speaking about? Because you know, you even have some twenty and thirty year olds who are claiming they're getting old, and hey, man, I'm just trying to make it, <laughs> and all this other stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, you know, like, I mean, are you serious right now? You're like thirty two. Yeah, man, but I'm, I just. I hit 30 like a couple of years ago, man. I'm old. I'm getting old, dude. So what do you say? Where's exactly do you often see? Where's the average? Because I know it doesn't work like that for everyone, but just around the average, where is that game of maintenance? When does it kick in and come into play as far Usually as mid, mid, mid to late 40s, if you've been sticking with it? Mm -hmm. I noticed a pretty big bump uh, in my uh, mid 
40s, mm-hmm. and then another in, in my uh, 50s, and then uh, I had another pretty big drop off in uh, my 60s. But uh, you know, it's never too late. I mean, I, I can remember a guy coming to me who was like 82 years old with a cane, barely could get up my stairs to my gym, mm-hmm. and I just worked with that guy and uh, just did general strength training, and it immediately improved. You know, people always talk about cardio. I mean, this guy's cardio improved tremendously just from improving muscular efficiency. And we were just doing really basic exercises. The guy threw away the cane and started playing golf again. And, uh, you know, then he died a couple of years. <laughs> but, hey, in those, but in those four years from the time that he trained with me till he was 86, he had a very, very uh, productive lifestyle. He was doing the things he really enjoyed. But up to that point, you know, he, he had gone almost 20 years with nothing. And he actually got was able to move his body it's never too late so right. i tell these guys man you know you, you just gotta start with that first workout and then make that second workout and then make that third workout but there you will you will feel the aging process come on there's no escape no one gets out of this world a lot you know <laughs> right right we're all gonna and um you gotta stop thinking like well i remember back in college i can remember when i was you know playing high school football it's like forget about that dude you know look at yourself now mm-hmm. you're just going to be setting yourself up for disappointment if you keep trying to compare yourself to what you were as a young man because it doesn't work that way you got to set other type of goals for yourself one good goal would be make 40 workouts in a row without missing them i'm not talking about you know every day i'm just saying 40 workouts in a row set yourself up a little challenge and another thing too i wanted to mention a lot of people will train but then they'll sit around. Let's say you train an hour a day. And I right. mean, most people don't even train an hour a day. And then they sit for 23 hours a day. Mm-hmm. The What you do in between workouts is really, really important. Now, you can't train hard every day. And myself, I train hard twice a week. But what I do find is I need to do some type of daily movement pattern. And that's where the joint mobility comes in. I can't emphasize how important it is to move your body every single day. And one of, one, uh, one of the, one of the movement uh, rituals I have every morning is the five rights of Tibetan yoga. I think it's fantastic. People can Google that if they want. It's a great training regimen. That would be the minimal. But I'll add some, uh, you know, I, I've been uh, studying the Russian and Slavic health systems for, for many years. And uh, there won't be a day that passes where I don't do multiple sessions throughout the day. I'll do like a mini session in the morning and then in the afternoon and in the evening. And uh, even now I'm sitting here moving my neck around <laughs> and moving my torso around as I sit talking to you guys. You should always be working on your mobility and your movement patterns. And that includes daily walks. You don't have to run, but for sure you got to get out there and locomote. I'm a big fan of crawling, crawling around like a like a little baby on the right. floor just to keep those motor patterns fired. That's what keeps you young. Yeah, I think of a lot of the joint mobility stuff from you, and it's something I do daily as well. And if I if I slack on it, let's say I go a week or two weeks without doing it, you really tighten up. Right. A lot of times you don't oh realize the benefits until you stopped it. You don't realize – a lot of times when you do it, after a while you're like, eh, is this even useful? And then you stop doing it. Then you realize real fast what the benefits <laughs> are. Your neck is all stiff. Your back is stiff. You're bending over to pick up something. <laughs> you, know, you feel like an old man with your knees cracking. It's like, all right, time to get some mobility work back in. 
Exactly. And it is subtle. And Mike, Mike makes a very good point because when you do it daily, you don't really necessarily notice how, how beneficial it is. But like, well, I'll give an example. I flew from Sydney, Australia to uh, Krasnodar, Russia. Uh, I've been fascinated with Russian martial arts for a while. And I was studying with the father of the Russian military martial arts, Alexei Alexevich Kadeshnikov. He was the guy that came up with the biomechanical drills, a lot of the mobility drills that we that we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was on the plane for 20 hours. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, yeah, it, I really felt horrible. I mean, every joint in my body from sitting that long was just like, I felt incapacitated from that level of sitting. And it, it shocks me how so many Americans will sit all day long and don't move. In fact, there was a dude in the plane sitting next to me that the entire time we flew, I don't think I saw the guy get up. That, that happens all the time, Steve. That happened to me when I flew to Australia. I was sitting next to this lady. I got up probably every hour or so and did some of your mobility work in the back of the plane. I just yeah, stretched sure. out. And I always get upgraded seats such as Economy Plus because there's more floor space where you can stretch out. You can do some spinal stuff and so forth, Hindu push-ups, things like that. And this one lady, I kid you not, she didn't get up the whole time. I don't think she even used the bathroom. She's wearing a diaper. I think, she, yeah, <laughs> I think she just sat there. <laughs> she's like, nope, she wasn't even sleeping. Yeah, <laughs> she, wasn't, she wasn't sleeping either. She was sitting there watching TV the whole time because I fell asleep for a couple hours. I woke up. I'm like, man, she's on another movie already. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was it was crazy, man. That's a long flight to not move. You're going to be. That's brutal, man. Yeah. Well, that's where the adult depends really came in handy. Exactly. <laughs> no, but Steve, you bring, I love your point about how even a lot of fitness people I I find are not very active, which is really ironic. Like I know people where I'll invite them to come hiking with me at Red Rock. Me and my dogs go there often and they'll be like, nah, you know, I got to work out tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm going to work out after the hike, man. I mean, you know, I'm going to work out tomorrow too. But I mean, this, this it's, it's almost like they're so focused on their workouts that when they're not working out, they want to do as little as possible out of this fear that it's somehow going to take away from their workouts. Well, it's really funny because, you know, working out is supposed to make you uh, make life more pleasurable and make <laughs> right. other activities, make other activities easier, easier right? Right, and, right. You know, another, another factor of training, proper training, is it should make you less susceptible to injuries. And I read about these knuckleheads hurting themselves in training all the time. And it's like, whoa, dude, you have no clue. Training's supposed to make you less susceptible to getting hurt. Right. I mean, and I think I think there's a huge confusion between you know what constitutes sport and recreation versus actually working out. People mm-hmm. have this huge confusion in their mind, you know. And, and uh, proper, you know, I mean, you accept that uh, playing a sport, you're going to get hurt. If you're playing basketball, you're going to sprain an ankle for sure, you know, or you're going to catch an elbow in the eye. You're playing soccer, you're going to pull something. It's just a given. You go out in the jujitsu mat for sure. You know, someone's trying to choke you or, or hurt you to make you, t- <laughs> you're going to get hurt. <laughs> right. But yeah. you accept that. But but with training, there's, you know, people have no business getting themselves injured. That means that they're not using good form, good technique. They're not training. Unless the training becomes the goal unto itself. Unless you are basically engaging in some form of weightlifting where, now the goal is to bench or deadlift or squat a certain amount of weight, to snatch a certain number of repetitions with the kettlebell. The the now the exercise is is an end unto itself, and that's something I never got into. And that's what the kind of people you're talking about that won't hike. The, the exercise is almost an end unto itself, 
and they're not using it to improve the quality of their life. They're doing it to become better at, at exercising, and I think that's a big mistake. And I think that's a perfect segue. Like It's been known how you really feel about the big trend of CrossFit, especially for so many people who are just getting off the couch and how it's very detrimental to their training. And Mike and I talk about this. When it comes to CrossFit, what people see on ESPN and see on the CrossFit games, what, what Joe and Jane Blow sitting on the couch don't understand that a lot of those athletes that you see competing in the CrossFit games, they're ex-athletes, like fresh from being ex-athletes. Like they just left college two years ago from competing competitively in college. And they haven't been sitting there for the last 10, 20, 30 years, raising a family, you know, and pretty much living the or dying in the American dream. But they look at this and they, and they get so glorified because, you know, it looks, oh yeah, I want to do that. And then they end up going and trying that and they end up getting hurt again, pretty much working out for the sake of working out of seven, trying to make a sport out of working out. So how do you feel about CrossFit and the fact that it is one of those things that is, is growing exponentially right now? But I kind of feel like at one point it's going to end up eating itself whole because it's getting too big, too fast and too many people getting hurt. Well, how do you feel about that? Well, there's there's a lot of I, I do a lot of seminars in CrossFit gyms. and I'm, I'm not against cross training per se. Uh, if you're not training for a particular sport, well, then for sure, it's nice to be able to do a lot of things fairly well. What people have to understand is the difference between working on skills and actual training. That's The other thing is competing in exercise is kind of insane. <laughs> How do you compete in exercise? And that's what these CrossFitters are doing. Right. If I said to you, Sincere, Mike, hey, man, let's do some push-ups and you know, let's get a good workout, we'd, both, we'd all be using good form. But if I said to you guys, hey, I bet dinner or I bet you 20 bucks, I can do more push-ups than you, for sure we're going to let the form go right out the window. And that's what's happening with CrossFit. People are becoming competitive with exercise, and it was never meant to be a competitive event. It's, I mean, if you think about all competition, all sports, it's way, a man's way of supplementing his desire to wage war on other men. It's a supplement, you know, man is rather a warlike creature. And these type of competitions, you know, it, it gives you an outlet for this type of aggressive tendencies. Well, I think. It's really misguided and misplaced, the people that are doing CrossFit as a, as a competition. They need to get in and do a real sport. I mean, if, they, if really, if you really get right down to it, the ultimate sport is mano-a-mano combat, right? Muay Thai, boxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu. They, they need to get in the ring of the cage if they, if, you know, to, to find an outlet for those type of aggressive tendencies. But back to CrossFit. Uh, what I'm finding with a lot of the owners of the CrossFit boxes uh, they're not following the CrossFit protocols at all. They're just using the name for the advertising. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of doing their own workouts, their periodization. They're not using, uh, you know, they're, they're not crushing their people every time. They're training two or three times a week with a lot of their, and they're not using the, uh, the Olympic lifts, which can be really dangerous, especially for older people. They're not doing this. And they're, they're using much same protocols in their gym, but they're just using the CrossFit name. But uh, let's just take a look at Greg Glassman. I made the, the point not too long ago. I mean, here's a guy that's about my age, maybe a little younger, that pretty much is obese and crippled up. He doesn't move. He's the guy that invented CrossFit. I mean, is that the kind of model you want to lead an exercise movement? Right. I mean, shouldn't he be an example of his work, of his right. ideas? Mm -hmm. yeah. The truth of the matter is he, he doesn't. He doesn't even work out. I mean, okay, he doesn't have to look like the cover of Men's Health Magazine or something. Right. He should be reasonably fit and a reasonable example of what he does. 
I also know some pretty high level CrossFitters. Uh, I actually did a seminar in which Iceland Annie, mm-hmm. the top one of the top female CrossFitters in the world, attended. And the woman is perpetually hurt, always injured. She actually had to quit. She actually retired from CrossFit for a while. I, now I hear she's thinking about making a comeback yeah. again. But she totally screwed herself up. And this is mm. an incredibly strong, fit, young 20-something who uh, injured herself bad enough that she almost had to retire from the competition. So, I mean, it, it just seems like like a form of insanity to me. Yeah, and I, I like your point about Glassman because I, I feel that you should be a product of the advice you give. That should be the final word, right? So if I'm telling someone this is what they should do, they should be looking at me and using that as part of their criterion on whether they should listen to me or not. And that's you, nothing will make you instill more confidence in your students than your own example. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and once again, you don't have to be like, you know, like – uh, an amazing athlete to be a good trainer for sure. Right. Right. And, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't have to look like uh, a fitness model or a bodybuilder to be a great trainer and to really be quite knowledgeable, but damn, you shouldn't be overweight, you know, <laughs> or, or really weak or, or, in, in you know, immobile. I mean, you, you should certainly uh, show good, good level of physical fitness. Yeah. You don't right. be a good example. You don't want to look like the stuff. example of what you don't want them to turn into from trading <laughs> <You're> using, <laughs> and, using your, exactly. and using your model. Like, okay, this is, look at me. This is what you're trying not to be. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to be that. Well, I mean, you, you don't want to call yourself a fat loss expert in your fat. <laughs> well, you know? well, he's a that's, fat, he's a fat finding expert in that case. If you're doing that, it's just like, yeah, I lose it, but I find it right away. You lose it, but you lose it. I'm a fat you, finding expert. You and I both know a few people. A few people from the old RKC that were like putting out diets and, and so forth and posing oh, yeah. as fat loss experts were quite fat. So. Yeah, Steve, Steve, I'm, Steve was... I'm, I'm curious, Steve, how, how do you how do you look at the whole RKC experience now, now that it's in the rearview mirror? Because, you know, I, I think I, I think about the good times fairly often myself. Like I really enjoyed working with you and, and Steve Cotter and Jeff Martone. And, you know, we, we had I felt like we had a really good team for a while and, and it was fun for a while teaching at those courses. And then, like I've talked about on the show, it got to a point where it wasn't fun anymore. And that's when I decided to leave. And I, I'm curious how, how you look back on that whole time and what you think of it now. Oh, that's going to wrap it up for part one of our interview with Steve Maxwell here on this episode of the Live Life Aggressively podcast. Like I said, this is a two-part series. And as you can tell right now, it's already a great conversation going on, but we definitely wanted to split it up because we went in a little over almost two hours. But again, want to respect your time. And also, I just felt like for the sake of time that we split it up and just give you guys a chance to recharge, refuel and get ready for the second part of the show. And that's coming up on the next episode, episode 77. That's going to be part two of our interview with Mr. Steve Maxwell, where Steve's going to take a look back at his early days of the RKC and how he feels about the RKC as of right now, especially now that they parted ways with Pablo. Also, I'm going on a cruise in a couple of weeks. Steve gave me some great advice how to approach a buffet. And no, he didn't tell me to avoid the buffet. 
day. But he gave me a tip because he says he goes on a lot of cruises and he's going to share one of the tips that has helped him remain lean and not get bloated and gain another 10 pounds or 20 pounds while he's spending a week on a cruise. And I'm going to take his advice on this. But you definitely want to tune in for this because if you're going to go on a vacation, this is probably something that can help you out as well, especially if you're coming out to Vegas in September for the Live Life Aggressively Summit. Hey, Vegas is the buffet capital of the world. And the tip that Steve gives us would definitely help you with that as well. So therefore, you won't be blowing everybody out doing the seminar. Okay. And I'm thinking that right there is worth its weight in gold. So anyhow, make sure you tune into the next episode of the Live Life Aggressively podcast. Mike Marlin, Sincere Hogan with part two of our interview with the legend himself, Steve Maxwell. Until then, make sure you hop over to MikeMahler.com or NewWarriorTraining.com, punch in the coupon code LLA, and you'll get 10% off all Mike's products on his website. And also, if you hop over to NewWarriorTraining.com, my website, you'll get 30% off of my digital download of my DVD, the physical copy of my DVD, and also 30% off of my Weight Management 101 course. Use that coupon code LLA at MikeMuller.com or NewWarriorTraining.com. So until the next episode, when we finish our conversation with Steve in part two, we'll check each and every one of you out on the next show. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.